Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, Career Coach One and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful examples of users of my right fit method. A key component of my method is passion. That's our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of success. Yet, many cannot find it. Looking back on my own career as a high-level manager in healthcare, my current career, overseeing the executive search firm I founded in 2003, Barrow Global Search, Inc., and coaching candidates at all levels, I realize that for many, it is a daunting challenge to connect to their passion. That's why, for my book, Win Without Competing, I selected storytellers who are soaked in passion to enable the readers to experience the passion of others. My guest today, Dr. Julianne Malvo, who is soaked in passion, as you will shortly hear in her voice. Two recent guests, Anne Edwards, internationally known celebrity biographer and Pulitzer Prize nominee for her biography of Reagan, and Stephen Citron, authority on musical theater, best-selling author for his biography of Noel and Cole, that's Noel Coward and Cole Porter. Citron also wrote Songwriting, A Complete Guide to the Craft, which is in its 17th edition. I selected those two guests to mention because they are in their 80s, and their passion has endured since childhood. When Edwards was 14, she had her first story published in the Reader's Digest. Citron, at age six, listened to his sister's piano lesson. Then, after her lesson concluded, he walked over to the piano and played perfectly the piece his sister could not play. He had never played a piano before. And we have a dual passion. Edwards and Citron are married to each other. They are as passionate about each other today as they are about their work. If you are searching for your professional and your personal passion, I highly recommend that you listen to both interviews. Go to drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com. Click on the April 1st show description for Edwards and the May 27th description for Citron. On to my guest today, Dr. Julianne Malvo, President, Bennett College for Women, is an MIT PhD economist. As a syndicated columnist and writer, her articles have appeared in USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Ms. Magazine, Essence Magazine, and many more publications. Dr. Malvo has appeared on CNN special, Reclaiming the Dream with Soledad O'Brien, PBS's To the Contrary, ABC's Politically Incorrect, and Fox News's The O'Reilly Factor. 
She has hosted and appeared on radio talk shows nationwide. Malvo is the founder of the multimedia company Last Word Productions. They are creating a program for PBS on the economy and people of color. Dr. Malvo's passion for education and young people led her to accept the presidency of Bennett College for Women in 2007. Welcome, Dr. Malvo, to Win Without Competing. Dr. Barrow, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your program. It's my pleasure. You were born and brought up in San Francisco. What did your parents do, and how did they influence you? Both of my parents were, uh, in one way or another, educators. My mom was a social worker, and my dad uh, was one of the few African-American principals uh, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco area. They're, both of them had a passion for education. They both believed you can do it, the whole can-do thing. Um, I always, because of them, placed a relatively high value, a very high value actually, on my brain, on the thinking process, on the thought process, on thinking something through. Um, my mom is also a risk taker. She has a relatively uh, unconventional career. She was a case social worker when she decided to go get her doctorate in social work at the University of California at Berkeley and then decided to go teach at the University of Mississippi. She and another young woman were hired at the same time and they were the first African Americans on the faculty at the University of Mississippi and must have been like 1973. So her risk taking, she stayed at Ole Miss for about three years, came back to the Bay Area and actually went into business but she wasn't very good at it because social workers, she tried to give away the profits as her partner said. Uh, but in any case, it was a huge risk for her, but it was one she was willing to take. And when I look at her life, I look at the risks that she's taken, and it emboldens me to take risks of my own. Well, you were very fortunate to have the parents that you had. Do you have brothers and sisters as well, Dr. Malvo? I do. I am the oldest of five. I have a brother who follows me by about 18 months, and then uh, t- twin sisters, and my youngest sister, Antoinette Malvo. Are they risk-takers along the lines that you are, and are they soaked in passion as you are? I think our our family, we're we're a family of passion, and all of us have some leadership ability that comes out from time to time. All of my sisters have played leadership roles in our sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, or in the nonprofit or even in the corporate world. Antoinette, for um, 13 years, was the president of the National Black MBA Association, um, she now is a uh, leader um, in the senior team at the Casey Family Foundation, which uh, does things with young people around foster care. Marianne is uh, kind of a free spirit, uh, has a law degree and an MBA, went back to get her law degree when she was in her 40s. She has a private practice in the Bay Area. Mariette is the only of the four women who have been married. She has my two nephews, Anya and Armand. And probably if you put us across a continuum, one might say that she is the gentlest um, of us. And also in some ways, I mean, she's taken risks, but in a very different way. She, unlike the rest of us, she's worked at the uh, telephone company for nearly 30 years, and I can't imagine being in one place for 30 years. And my brother is a contractor in the Bay Area. Shortly, we're going to learn more about your career so we know how you've been hopping and popping around nationwide. When did you like to, what did you like to do as a child, and how did you envision yourself as an adult? Well, my passion as a child was reading. Um, I have an essay that I wrote a couple of years ago uh, that's called Nose in a Book, because my mom used to always say to me, you always have your nose in a book. So I love to read. There was a book uh, by Oscar Lewis, La Vida, which was a uh, ethnographic study of people in, in Puerto Rico. And I remember, I must have been nine or ten, the book was out. It had come out, and uh, my mom was reading it because she was a social worker. But it was pretty, um, it was not suitable reading for a child. But I wanted to read it. It was a big, thick book. And she hid it, and I found it. And she said, okay, if you want to read it that badly, I mean, she put it on the top shelf of a bookshelf, and I climbed up there to get it. She said, okay, if you want to read it that badly, read it. But I had to read it with a dictionary because I was all of nine years old. And But that just speaks to the the way that I love to read. Even now I will 
can't do it as much as I used to, but some mornings I'll get up early because I want to finish a book. Uh, so I was I was kind of a bookwormy kid, but I was also an activist. I was very active. Um, I don't like organizing things, like talent shows, fashion shows, that kind of thing. Um, but reading was my first love, and then research. And my siblings love to tell people stories about how I would line encyclopedias down the hall. You know how you read an encyclopedia and it says, you know, you're reading about South Africa, and they may say, see Lesotho. They read Lesotho and they say, well, you know, see the Zulu tribe. Well, I would go in and get the CCCs and line it up so I could have an uninterrupted read. Meanwhile, of course, <laughs> other people want to use the hallway. And I would say, go through the back because I'm reading. And that wasn't very popular, but that's kind of how I was. Well, it sounds like you had a very strong self-concept when you were young, that you were you started to really develop yourself as an individual. Am I correct? Oh, yeah, very much so. How did you envision yourself as an adult when you were young? Did you start seeing yourself growing up, being like your parents, being the same as your, similar to your parents, different from your parents? What did you think about as you were growing up? Because obviously you were a thinking human being at an early age. You know, I always knew that I wanted to write. I always talked about writing. Were it not for... Um, the influence of my mom, I used to say that I wanted to write fiction. And um, when we got in trouble, we had to write lines. Uh, you know, I will not lie again. I promise not to, whatever. But what I would do is write about four lines, and then I'd write these short stories. And then I, and the short story would be, of course, about the victimized child with the wicked mother. You know. <laughs> I'm sure your mother loved it. Well, we just, it was a test to see if she was really reading all those lines. You know, if you had to write something 500 times, I mean, was she really going to read this 500 times? Um, but I wanted to do fiction, and she kept saying, well, you know, you better do something else because you know, black women aren't going to make any money at fiction. Well, little did she know about Terry McMillan and Suzaki Shange, all those great people. But um, So part, I did economics partially because I was kind of afraid of doing fiction, but also partially because I um, – was passionate about racial economic gaps and wanted to know how to close them. I mean, I still have a slice of a fiction writer in me and still think, you know, and about a half dozen half-written novels on this laptop or the other. But it's not a priority. It's something that intrigues me but not a priority. So I, but I saw myself as a writer, one. I saw myself as someone who talked. I always thought I'd love to give speeches, um, and I do. <laughs> I um, saw myself doing things in media, um, although not quite as it played out, but I always saw myself doing some things in media. I kind of always saw myself being a troublemaker. Um, well, a troublemaker in a positive sense in that you wanted to make changes in society. Is that what you mean as a, by a troublemaker, someone who's, who wants to ignite something? You know, there, there have, has been so much injustice, and that was a very big part of it. I mean, there you you have two sort of twinning themes. You can go along to get along, or you can say there's something wrong with this. And I was always the one, a very good friend of mine calls me the onion. There's always the one to sort of say something's wrong with this. Now, in self-reflection, I would admit that, you know, every now and then you really do need to go along to get along, but not always. And I um, told someone the other day, I said, if my students tried on me some of the stuff I tried on other people, it would not turn out right. It simply wouldn't turn out right while encouraging their creativity and self-motivation. They're just, you know, their limits and their lines. But these are lines that I basically didn't know, didn't experience. I want to step back and look more into your thinking with respect to becoming an economist because in my introduction I talked about passion and the need to basically soak yourself in your passion and to follow that to succeed in your career. How did you become introduced to economics? Well, when I went to college, I went to Boston College undergrad, I had no notion of what an economist was. At that time, I thought probably that I would be a lawyer. I saw myself as pre-law. And, of course, the thinking behind that is that those of us who were fully enthralled by and engaged in the civil rights movement saw the law as a way to right wrongs, to uh, settle injustices, and to do those kinds of things. So I, I, I really thought I'd be going to law school. But I took an econ class my freshman year. 
Um, I was very intrigued by the class. I did very well on it. I got an A+. But in addition, one of the uh, exercises that I did, it was one of those times I took extra time to do a particular exercise, and I actually typed it out. The professor actually took my answers and copied them and gave them to the other people as model answers. And I was like, hmm, I think I got something here. But also, if you're interested in racial economic gaps, which I am and have been has kind of driven parts of my career, um, eight, racial economic gaps such as having an 8.9% overall unemployment rate but a 15% rate for African Americans or that African American family income is 60% of that of overall income, those kinds of things. If you want to close those gaps, you've got to look at money. You've got to look at the economy. And so that sort of fueled the movement to economics. But I must say around my life and career, there's sort of always been an ambivalence in my senior year, I mean, I was just like, okay, I could do this or I could do that. I could do this or I could do that. So my senior year, I applied for uh, law school, graduate school in economics, journalism, psychology, which was kind of a new thing, and I don't know where that came from, uh, and public policy. So I applied for several things. Ah, okay. I so you, of, you, were going to, you were open to a number of different routes is what you're saying. I didn't know which one I wanted, so I tried for them all. And... Um, uh, you know, sort of saying, well, let's see what happens. And as, you know, acceptances and rejections came in, you know, I, I, you know and there weren't, you know, many rejections. And so this, the application process didn't solve my problem, as I thought it might. Uh, but then I eventually decided MIT was the number one place in economics. Economics really was kind of my first love. One of the things, or maybe my third or fourth love, but I loved it this passionately. None of the things, you know, at one point I thought about a JD, PhD, and there were people who'd done that, and that seemed interesting. But I said, hey, let's do this and, you know, go for it. Now, interestingly, in there, there were many times in the middle of studying economics that I thought about and even um, considered leaving. At one point I had a television internship. The Association for the Advancement of Science had a program that put social scientists in media institutions. So for a summer, I worked at WFAA, which is an ABC affiliate in Dallas, Texas, and did everything from do on-air work to write script and copy to produce, you know, early morning news to show up and, you know, do all this sort of production assistant stuff. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and one of the things that I was able to do was um, infuse economic content into the news process. So... I could probably be 100, and I'll never forget the first story I did on a small business because the opening line was, Ruby Begonia is not the name of the owner but the business. And, um, but, that I, of course, I had to repeat it a gazillion times to learn how to modulate my voice. Uh, but what I was excited about was that the whole, that was 1975, the whole small business story, we're having economic hard times, and the small business story was a compelling one. Another thing I was able to do at WFAA was a, a, a bio piece for a black history story on Dr. Robert Weaver, who was the first African-American in the cabinet. He was Secretary of HUD under Linda Johnson. And so toward the end of the summer, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I won't go back to grad school. But I talked to one of my professors, and she said, well, you know, you're going to be better armed with a doctorate than without. Come on back. So there were times when I was tempted. Another time, and this is hilarious, I danced with a dance troupe. I wasn't very good in confession, full candor. I was not very good, but I was very enthusiastic. And these people went to Broadway. Now, I was a graduate student at MIT, I think it was in my third year, and they were going to Broadway, and I surely thought that I would be going, uh, you know, having no uh, lack of modesty. I thought, well, you know, they'll pick me. Um, and the gentleman said to me, uh, you will make a much better economist than you will a dancer. <laughs> well, that was very smart that he saw what your key talents were. I think you were very fortunate, don't you think? Well, I would last on Broadway for like five minutes. Um, but it was just really funny because it's always like, you know, your heart goes some places, your head goes somewhere else, and your abilities sometimes are somewhere else. And I think we all always have to balance that. How do you think that your early childhood contributed to your level of self-confidence? Because frequently when I'm coaching people, I observe that one of the issues that they have is self-confidence. How did you build your level of self-confidence? 
I was constantly affirmed as a very bright and very independent child. So you could you could not tell me that whatever answer I came up with on anything had some validity. Now, there were other areas, of course. My mom and my parents were divorced when I was six. My mom was a single mom. Uh, so there are, there's a whole murky area of gender relations where I have no confidence. Um, and I'm real clear about that. Um, but I, my independence, because my mom was a single mom, my independence was fully fostered. Uh, we were, you know, kind of constantly told, you know, don't depend on, don't rely on a man for your well-being. And that was a function of what my mom found herself doing in a typically female line of work, social work, needing ancillary support and not always getting it from my dad. So she was like, make sure you can make your own money. Learn how to take care of yourself. So our independence was fully fought. So I remember a friend saying, a friend of hers who was a younger woman, maybe in her 30s, saying she was going to wait to get married to have a house. And my mom sort of barked at her, you can have a house on your own. Uh, <laughs> you know. And so you, in, you take in all those messages. Well, you including it's, uh, including the message. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't go to college. It never. The the only time I think I was ten or eleven, and I had a little a little girlfriend who's um, her family were immigrants, and her sister married at sixteen, and she married a fireman, and she stayed at home, and she ate ice cream, and watched TV all day, and I thought that was the life of Riley. I thought, oh my, this is wonderful. So I went home one day and said to my grandmother, I think I'm going to be just like a Evelyn Phillips and just sit at home and eat ice cream. And I couldn't finish the word cream before my grandmother had gotten up and started shaking. And she said, people in this family don't sit around eating ice cream. People in this family go to college. And so, again, you take Did your grandmother go to college, Dr. Melville? She she did. She was a graduate of um, Tuskegee Institute. Ah, so so she, she was a wonderful role model then. Oh, she really was. She was one of five and four of the five. All five had some time in college at four of the five were graduates. So that's relatively unusual for African-American families to have the college thing go that far back. Relatively, but certainly there's a long history. Our historically black colleges and universities were being founded in the 1860s and 70s. Bennett College itself was founded in 1873. So... and when I say unusual, I mean not the norm, but it was always the norm for black folks to go to college as soon as colleges for us opened. You see yourself as a change agent in which you use different communication avenues and positions to accomplish that objective. Professor, researcher, columnist, writer, radio and TV commentator. Let's start with professor and researcher. You've taught and conducted research studies at a number of universities. Tell us about what you achieved. And the reason why I want to focus in on achieving is that frequently people believe if they work for many years that that in itself is an achievement. And I want to make it very clear that we really want to work to accomplish or to achieve something. It's not the number of years that we spend, but what are, are the results of what we do. You know, as a fact, well, I, um, my undergraduate, undergraduate uh, honors work was on urban issues and how, things, how urban areas looked very different than other areas. My graduate dissertation was called Unemployment Differentials by Race and Occupation. What I looked at was ways that um, occupational differences did not blur the two-to-one ratio between African Americans and whites in terms of unemployment rate. So black doctors had twice the unemployment rate as white doctors. Um, The labor economics work that I did uh, always kind of added a dimension. So in the pay equity area, for example, and you remember in the early 80s, a lot of work was being done on comparable worth. And frankly, we still need to do that work because we still don't have pay equity. But as you looked at that work, what I was able to do was to infuse what it meant to the African-American community. In much of my published research, uh, my first uh, academic work that was published was on private household workers, looking at maids, really, because in 1940, the majority of African-American women, nearly 60% were maids. And so, and that percentage began to lessen 
after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the entry of African-American women into clerical occupations. But in service occupations, you were also looking at people who did maid-like work, if not maid's work. So, for example, um, home health aides, that kind of thing. So that the academic work that I did, I think, opened some things up. I still find some of my early work cited in places, which, of course, always excites me. I, there was a book called Black Women in the Labor Force that was uh, published by a woman, Dr. Phyllis Wallace, who was my mentor. I have an essay in there, and it's interesting how you come full circle. Just um, well, maybe two months ago, a book was published called Dirt. It's a story about housekeeping, and a woman named Mindy Lewis has anthologized us, and my piece is included in there in which I talk about housework as a personal and political statement. So keeping the kind of theme of looking at race, gender, culture, and ways that they intersect. And I think that some of that intersectionality, we can see in, I, I can see in my early work and we can see the continuation of it. So you're saying your early work is still relevant today, even I'm, though the balance may change among uh, the three pieces that you're looking at. You know, Dr. Barrow, one of the things that I find amazingly interesting, I did a piece in 19, I want to say 86 or 87, on um, women of color and occupational segregation. And my mentor, Dr. Phyllis Wallace, and a woman, um, I believe her name is Marianne Ferber, a long time ago, did this were many of the contributors to a book on occupational segregation. Dr. Ferber asked me probably 86, perhaps 20, 15 years later in the mid-90s to update the piece, or late 90s, to update the piece. And when I did and actually crunched the numbers, I found that we had not made as much progress as we thought in terms of women and where we're concentrated in the workplace. Oh, we have some fabulous examples of just outstanding women. You know, just an African-American woman now, the head of um, Xerox Corporation, Oprah Winfrey, multi-mega-millionaire. We've got all these examples. But if we, we look at average women, we find that you still have these pockets of occupational concentration around race and gender. And so, yes, the early work was... was um, significant, but what I find is that it's not out of date. Yeah, you set the stage. In other words, from what I can see, you probably created a model from which people could um, apply so that you gave them a way of looking at the situation. Am I correct? I think that's right. But I also think, again, the the point that, 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 that strikes me is that Things have not changed as much as much as we'd like. Well, that I would agree. Um, but also, too, I think the fact that you started people thinking about different aspects is very important. I think so too. I mean, I think, and I think that again, I was very blessed and highly favored to have the kind of people around me. I can't. Um, and I'm, you, in your work, I'm sure you, you also emphasize it, the importance of mentorship. Absolutely. Having people around me who got me, nurtured me, and sometimes they didn't get me, but they supported me anyway. They believed in me, and that's just a great thing to have. And I think we need to create those kind of opportunities and possibilities for young people as much as we can. I know that you love working with young people. Uh, would you like to comment about uh, your teaching experience at universities? What type of contribution do you think that that made at particular universities? Well, I've got mentees, former students, protégés that are sprinkled all over the United States, and I just really sizzle when I run back into them and they say, you made a difference in my life. I think from the women's studies classes I taught at San Francisco State where I was hired to be an econ professor, we branch into doing some women's studies and, and African-American studies, to the, uh, I, I did a conference on public policy at UC Berkeley and took 15 students from Berkeley to Washington. First time opportunity for many of them to see how public policy worked. That was a pivotal experience of that group, a one young woman is now a state legislator out of Maryland, which every time I see her name, I just say, okay, 
okay, and I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing um, to have had the opportunity to touch people in that way, and to have had people be open to you um, to be able to be touched. I have young people who um, have heard me only do a lecture, but on the basis of a lecture, have decided they want to be a part of my life and um, stuck with some of those. So I think that when we open ourselves up to possibilities and opportunities, that we have the probability of transforming lives. That's what education does. Education has the power to transform lives, to just take lives and set them on their head so that something you cannot imagine that you could have done suddenly becomes accessible. Because also, too, I think you served as a role model for them as well. So I think it's dual, the education and the fact that you served as a role model. Well, you know, I tell young people, I don't want to be your role model. I want to be your sense of possibility. Would I have people do things exactly as I've done them? Not necessarily. But I want you to know that it's possible to be um, educated and cool, educated and fun, that you can be a professor or a college president and you don't have to be dour. Um, so I, 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 the role, I remember Charles Barkley saying he didn't have any role models, which he wasn't telling the truth. But part of it is the role model thing can become um, stifling if you don't open yourself up again to the possibility of many role models and many kinds of possibilities for yourself. Well, I think that I use the term role model as somebody to look up to and to admire, not someone to follow exactly in that person's footsteps. Okay. Yeah, well, I like it con- that way. Yeah, as a concept, you know, that you achieved at high levels, that's something to admire. You're a risk taker, you're self-confident, those are things to admire. You like doing things first, that's something to admire. Those, that's how I look at it. Okay. Your weekly columns appeared for more than a decade in newspapers across the country, including the Los Angeles Times, the Charlotte Observer, the New Orleans Tribune, the Detroit Free Press, and the San Francisco Examiner. You refer to yourself as a mad economist. What did you mean by that, and how did you want your readers to change their behavior and mindset? Mad as in angry, mad as in crazy, mad as in clear that there's a sign that something is wrong. That's what anger is. Anger is a sign that there is something wrong, that all is not right with the world. I assert that you cannot be African-American, female, and conscious and not be angry. Look at unemployment rates. Look at the crass capitalism that infects us all. Look at what's happening to our young women. Look at the persistence of patriarchy. Look at any of these things, and if it does not strike you that something is wrong, then you're part of the problem, frankly. And so the mad economist thing kind of came up when I, you know, someone else actually came up with the title, but a woman was reading you know, some of the columns in my first book, Sex, Lies, and Stereotypes, Perspectives of a Mad Economist, was a column collection. So this woman was reading, she says, it sounds like you're mad. And I'm like, well, what's not to be mad about? And so the the appellation kind of stuck. Okay. Um, ultimately, if you could change the world, what would you do? Because you seem to have an image of how you would like things to be changed. Can you give us a peek into that image? I think that, well, first of all, we would have social and economic justice. We would have a better distribution of income and wealth, but also at least a floor below which nobody sank. Everybody would be full because we don't need to have hunger in this world. Everybody would be housed because there really is enough space. We would not rape our environment daily with the um, all the violations that we do to our world for our corporate convenience. People would have work. They would have productive work that lifts them up. And if they had work that did not lift them, they would be adequately compensated for the inconvenience. See, people who have the most intellectually fulfilling work shouldn't necessarily be the best paid people on the planet. Maybe the best paid people on the planet should be the people who pick up our garbage, which isn't all that fulfilling. 
But we would also talk about community and the notion of a nation, the notion of a world. What kind of community are we in? We have a much more open environment with conversation about distribution. We would have health care for everyone. Now, of course, from and that's a social from an economic perspective. Everyone else always says to me, "How do you pay for it all?" Well, you decide to make different kind of decisions about who gets what. Economics is a study of who gets what, when, where, and why. That's what economics is about. So you make different decisions about who gets what. And I certainly, and I know in, in capitalism, and we are in capitalism, you can't skew the remuneration system but so much without essentially dampening incentive. In other words, if everybody got paid the same thing, why would anybody work? So you definitely want to maintain the whole notion of innovation um, and all of those things, but you still want to make decisions about what it costs to live in a certain kind of society. But the other thing that I think we've done that, that, that needs to change is we've sidelined lots of talent. We write people off because of their race, because of their gender, because of their immigrant status, because of their sexual orientation. We decide that these people don't deserve to play the game. And so we end up with black and brown young people not necessarily having the opportunity to go to college. We end up with women underrepresented in the STEM areas because basically doors have been slammed in their face. And when we slam the door in the face of a talented person, the question we might all ask ourselves is what do we deprive the world of? And so we would be more open in terms of embracing talent and using that talent to take the world to a better place. In 1996, you founded Last Word Productions, a multimedia production company. Why did you establish that company? Well, I was doing radio. I was a radio talk show host. I, my show was probably not, well, it wasn't renewed, and I had a sense that it wasn't going to be renewed, but I also knew that there were some things that I could produce myself. And so Last Word was essentially founded as a corporate vehicle for me to produce myself, to manage my speeches, to manage some of the content that I was dealing with, and it evolved. I mean, we've done lots of, lots of different things with Last Word, award-winning programming around elections, uh, diversity trainings that we've uh, developed for corporate leadership that use media as a way of teaching about diversity, um, show and production, which it's on hold right now, but it will uh, return. Um, but Last Word has been a very um, important organ and a way for me to have both a corporate presence and a personally fulfilling presence. In 2007, you became the president of Bennett College for Women. Why was this the right fit position for you, and how did you convince the board to hire you? Yeah, Bennett College for Women pulled together so many of my passions. Uh, my passion for the continuation and the strengthening of African-American institutions. Uh, my passion for young women and for ways that young women could soar, could be celebrated and educated uh, and developed into 21st century leaders and global thinkers. Um, the research that I've done on the labor market and on pathways to work, all of those things seem to come together in this particular opportunity. And so, again, as I said earlier, I mean, I, I approach things like this often with some ambivalence. You can do this, but can you do that? But it, was, it so intrigued me. It didn't get out of my head. A couple of friends and colleagues encouraged me to apply for the position, and I did. What I did with the board is in my first meeting with them, which was, uh, or their search, the search committee, I put together a PowerPoint, really a multimedia presentation that was reflective of the work that I'd done to show them what my vision was. And I felt that if I was a producer and these were things that I did, that I had to showcase for them the kind of work that I did. So basically I had a roughly 30-slide presentation that told them what I would do if I were selected. So you packaged yourself to pitch. That's the terminology that I use in, you know, for my in, as part of my right fit method, mm -hmm. and you were successful. Yes. Is this something you had thought about yourself doing this kind of presentation? Um, yes and no. I mean, obviously, I had I was blessed to have a lot of good friends and colleagues um, kind of walk me through aspects of the process. So, for example, 
you know, when I they had a, a process, they had an application process. There were 75 people who applied. They narrowed it down to six, and the six were given interviews. And of course, I sort of groused, "What should I do? What should I do?" And um, there were a couple of friends who said, "Well, you've got to do something." with some media in it, you know, you've got to. And it had been in the back of my mind, but when they said that, I was like, you know, they're right. So I, um, one of the strengths that I think I claim is that I don't mind asking for help. I don't mind getting feedback, even when it's not necessarily the feedback that I want. Um, and so I was very willing to reach out to folk, to friends, and uh, my friends and colleagues uh, look a lot like me. They're they're innovators, risk takers, at the cutting edge, um, involved in some way in, in social change and in communities. And they gave me great, great, great advice. So they helped you formulate what you were going to. Did you practice with them prior to giving the presentation? Not really. Um, I may have practiced. Uh, I went through the presentation myself, and I may have practiced with my assistant in D.C., but I I don't think that I really practiced with the team. I did get coaching from one friend, uh, Dr. Vanessa Weaver. Her company is called Alignment Strategies, and she and I sat down for about an hour, and she sort of ran questions at me. If they ask you this, what will you say? If they ask you that, what will you say? And a couple times she said, well, no, you really don't know that you want to say that. There was another woman um, who had worked – basically in, in diversity areas, who was pitching questions to me constantly saying, you know, here's a question for you. How would you answer this? And so it forced me to think. Um, I probably pre- prepared for the interview more thoroughly than I prepared for almost anything in life because it was that important to me. That, I think, is is key, what you just said. You really wanted that position, obviously. Mm-hmm. How did you feel after you gave your presentation? I mean, I felt great. I felt that I'd done a good job. There were a couple of challenges. Um, There were a couple of challenges just in terms of logistics, and um, the the team flew in, the search team flew in from out of state. They were a little bit late because of weather, and there were, I guess, six other people, five other people they were seeing, so the amount of time they had was kind of truncated. So there were just a few little challenges, and I think I probably, in context, went a little long. But they didn't stop me, so I didn't stop me. And, uh, you know, but I I tell you, I um, was taken down. I took a cab down, and I walked home. It was walking distance to my house in Washington. Not easy walking distance, maybe um, a 30-minute walk in heels as opposed to a 15-minute walk. But I felt like I could have jogged home. What ha- what was the next step after that presentation? Did they call you immediately, or at the end of that presentation, did they give you some clue as to how you had done from their perspective? The body language of the search committee was basically good. There were a couple people who were a little stiff, but it was basically good. I walked around the table and introduced myself to most of them, and I got good vibes. Um, one or two of the people who I'd had prior um, interactions with sort of whispered good job in my ear, but no one really, I mean, they were to be an impartial body, and so nobody, you know, at the end of it said, great, you're wonderful. It was thank you for your time, Uh, you know. But I felt good. And I I mean, one of the things that one of the coaches said to me was, one one of my friends said to me was, even if you don't get this job, the fact that you are preparing is teaching you something that you've chosen not to deal with before. Because, Dr. Barrow, I hadn't applied for a job in 20 years. I was doing my own thing. Um, I would very flippantly, when people say, well, you know, send me your CV, I said, well, Google me, you know. Um, <laughs> you know? And yeah, but, that's, but that's interesting, Dr. Malvo. If we could probe a little further there about not pl- having applied for a position for 20-plus years, um, because there are many people in that situation now who are unemployed. So that would be helpful, I guess, to hear more about whether you were 
a bit nervous or uncomfortable because you hadn't been in the job market searching and interviewing on an ongoing basis. Could you comment on that? Oh, certainly. You know, whenever you apply for a position, whenever you put yourself out there, you're taking a risk. You put yourself out there, and people can say yay or nay. Now, certainly I had applied for grants, and I've done that kind of thing, but whenever you put yourself out there, you are taking a risk that people are going to judge you, that people are going to decide you're worthy or not worthy. And so, you know, the risk was a little hard to take, in honesty. I mean, I kept saying, well, you know, this is a lot of work. I didn't have a CV. I basically hired someone to clean up a CV that was 18 years old. Um, I mean, literally, people would ask me for a CV, and I would send them a bio and and said to them, Liv, you can't work with this? That's okay. I'm fine with it. These folks immediately said, look, you have to have a CV, like a real CV. I'm like, oh, that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, why were you reluctant to prepare a CV? <laughs> it was too much. It was a lot of work. It was a, It was a lot of work. And I had to go back and look at everything I'd done. And I, even my, my CV now, I would give it uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, a 6. I mean, it needs a lot of work. There are lots of articles that aren't in there. And, you know, but, and not but, it, it's interesting. It, it, was, it was an interesting process, and it really did um, bring up a lot of fear. But Hill Harper says that uh, fear stands for uh, false experiences appearing real. So our false expectations appear. So you're thinking one thing and another thing is happening. So you're you're frightened because you don't know what's going on. Um, I think a lot of people in the labor market now are probably if you've been out if you've had the same job for 20, 30 years, you and suddenly people who are 55, 57 right. are finding themselves you know out of work and trying to figure out how to search. And it, it, and I would say that it isn't easy. But I would also say that one of the ways to deal with it is to find a team of people who are going to be your boosters, your cheerleaders, but also your friendly critics to push you through. I mean, it's too easy. I just told a young woman today, it's too easy to sort of sit in a place that says, well, gee, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, why don't you figure out what's going to happen by getting in the game? Well, that's what some. That's the point, though, that some people are very fearful about getting in the game. The question is how to help them desensitize. I mean, one of the issues I think has to do with the fact that people take things personally, and for years I've been trying to encourage either people who I'm supervising or people that I'm coaching to step aside and not to take things personally. I think that's part of the issue. Well, I I agree with you a thousand percent, but guess what? It's easier said than done. When you're the person in the game, it's personal. But what people have to do is to separate themselves from the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, almost like a cognitive dissonance. You watch yourself going through the motions just like you're an observer. On one hand, you're in it, and on the other hand, you're watching. So you're able to go back and say about yourself. Well, I thought, yeah, I was going to say it takes me back to the time when I was defending my doctoral dissertation, which was on creativity at UCLA. And I remember afterwards, the chairman of my dissertation committee said, she suddenly didn't recognize me. I guess that I had adopted a new approach for that purpose, and it worked, because I graduated with distinction for the doctoral dissertation, and in part it was related to the defense and all of that. So it's interesting what you can do if you set your mind to it, that disassociation. Precisely. And and just really watching yourself and learning and loving yourself with all of your imperfections so that some of the things you do or say in interviews or in other contexts are, you know, flatly wrong, frankly, but they're you. So then embrace that part of you and say, okay, so... That's who I am. I'm going to make an irreverent wisecrack. Let's let's deal with that. How long did it take for your offer to come from Bennett? From the second interview, there was the first interview, then the second when they there were six of us, they narrowed it down to three. And from that interview to the offer was about another 
five weeks. About another. That's actually very fast. Well, they had a constraint that, you know, the prior president, Dr. Janetta Cole, had given them a year to find her successor because she had, when she came, um, decided, said to them, I'm going to give you five years. So they had a full year, and, you know, there was a process and all of that, so they needed to, to make a transition. They, I think it was fast, and it wasn't fast. The search process that they engaged in was, uh, and it was search and succession planning, which was very, I think, smart of them, but that whole enterprise was took them a full academic year. But nevertheless, uh, they concluded the search from the time you were at the beginning of your interview in a five-week period, if I'm understanding that correctly. Right. They interviewed the people who were candidates in a a very short period of time. Then they considered, I guess they did background checks. They did various and sundry things, yeah. I mean, I think that's commendable. Um, That's unusual. Going further, you have built your career on passion. For those who are having difficulty finding their passion, what do you suggest? I suggest they take time to get to know themselves. Ask themselves questions, guided sort of visualizations. What do you like? What do you like to do? Here's what I ask students all the time, Dr. Barrow. What would you do if you could do absolutely anything? Let's assume there were no constraints. You didn't care about the money. Um, Location wasn't an issue. What would you do? And that's the question that people should think about at every stage. What would I do if I, if, you know, what would you do if you had a year to live? You know, someone walks up and says, you have one year to live. What do you, now, some people just sit on their behinds and, you know, eat ice cream. And maybe that's their passion, and they have to figure out a way to make a living. But you have others who say, gee, I haven't yet done, and you fill in the blank. Pa- passion, some people have it naturally and innately, but other people have to cultivate it. And there are all kinds of tools out there, and you know, you're so brilliant, I know that you can – Share some of them with people, but tools to help people figure out kind of where they fit. You know, you've got all these, um, what color is your parachute, uh, Myers-Briggs, this, that. But I don't know that you need all that. I think you need to just, what I tell, again, my students is close your eyes and go inside. Just, And, you know, sometimes you're in a job, in a job. And, I, you know, you don't ever want to, uh, Cornell West always says, you don't ever want to confuse your career with your calling. You know, so they're they're two different things. So you may be in the job that you're supposed to be in because you got the master's, you got the doctorate, you're going to teach this, and that's what you're doing. But if it doesn't make your temperature rise, you better find out what does. Because if you live in a space where your temperature doesn't rise, you're not a happy person. Of course, on Win Without Competing, I also try to help people connect with their passion from the perspective of the core identity and that the core identity can change over time. And that I basically think if you look at your career, you have multiple careers going on concurrently. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be helpful when people are searching for their passion to say to themselves, I don't just have to do one single thing. You know, that's so correct. I mean, we we are taught to live our lives in silos. And what we have to do is live our lives in circles. You know, there are so many different aspects of who we are, and we just have to try to fully integrate that by not necessarily doing one thing, but sort of getting on and off the horse we love on the merry-go-round. So we stay on the merry-go-round of life, but sometimes we're riding on sitting on the pink horse. Sometimes it's a unicorn, you know, because it's what feeds our spirit then. So, you know, in an average week, I might find myself speaking. Um, it may have something to do with Bennett College. And then again, it may not because I still do some uh, speaking out on the lecture circuit. I find myself once a week writing. I don't write um, for King Features anymore, which was my syndicate, but I write for NNPA, which is a National Newspaper Publishers Association, and I'm in up to 50 papers a week. Um, I find myself doing counseling with both students and and faculty and staff um, and listening. I find myself um, doing strategic planning. They're all different things. 
And it's really cool to be able to have those various facets, spokes in a wheel, if you will. Well, I think it's key because you're not looking to one aspect uh, to fulfill all of your needs. And I think that contributes to the building up of that passion and also illustrates why you are soaking in passion. <laughs> that I, and that's a really good point. You know, I, there's a theory in economics called compensating differentials. And what it really means is if you have a job, you have a career, whatever you have, or just you have opportunities, there's good stuff and bad stuff in everything you do. There's stuff you're going to love and there's stuff you're not going to love. Right. And so, and so those are compensating differentials. You get to do, you know, this great job at X, but you have to do Y. You get to be a college president and influence an influ- you know influence educational program, but I have to do fundraising. Um, so it's the compensation. You know, you get something really great, and it has some aspects of it that are a little more difficult than others. Um, you know, you you get to get paid a whole lot of money in some cases, but you have to you know like celebrities, but you have to be willing to deal with the paparazzi. Now you know, so the compensating differentials thing means that you have to be very cognizant and aware of what the pros and cons are, and as long as the pros outweigh the cons, you manage the cons. But on days when there are too many cons, if you're sort of multi-careering, you find something to do that fulfills you. Not a day should go by without a fulfilling moment in it, that at the end of the day you can't say, ah, that was the moment I really loved today. And it doesn't have to be the whole day. But it has to be the day, the part of the day that says, ah, yeah, that really worked for me. Well, I think that's beautifully said. How do you find time for a personal life, and how do you balance your professional and personal life? Eh, see, now you got my Achilles heel. <laughs> well, that's it. I saved the best for last, Dr. Malville. Um, you know, I'm a workaholic. I love my work, and I'm constantly challenging myself to do balance, to have joy. Um, to also, I mean, you have to have those aha moments, but you also have to have those joyful moments. And so I'm really working harder on that. And the people who are very close to me, um, you know, kind of nudge me a little bit. Um, you know, I don't date at the moment just because. Um, and they're like, well, you could be dating. I'm like, yeah, I could be. I could also be parasliding or para- whatever, <laughs> jumping out of airplanes. You know, I, we could try that one too. Um, but, but in any case, I do think a personal life is important. I have two lovely nephews, a great uh, group of siblings and friends, and I really do work very hard to make sure that I stay in touch with them, I spend time with them, um, that we're, we're at least emotional intimates. We're not necessarily, you know, we don't see each other as much as I like, but we're emotional intimates. We know each other. And so, yeah, I, I do work at it, and it is my Achilles heel. If anything ever goes, you know, if it, the, the, the plate is too full, my likelihood is basically taking the personal life off the plate, saying, oh, I was supposed to have dinner with a friend, but the articles do. And that's kind of the thing that I really work on um, managing. Well, that's your blueprint, though. I know if you remember, I know you read Win Without Competing, and in the last chapter of the book, I talk about balancing your personal life and your professional life. I mean, obviously, you've given the bulk of your balance to your professional life. I don't think that there's a right nor a wrong to that. No, I don't think there's a right or a wrong, but I do think that people need balance. Harvard University does a uh, new president seminar, and I participated in it, as did uh, like 45 other people, in the summer of 2007. And there was a woman from Ithaca College who said that her secret to success was that she took time off. Her formula was an hour a day, a day a week, a weekend a month, and a month a year. And she said that was her formula for just taking time off. And I, I, it's stuck in my mind because it so resonates that you can't be at your best professionally unless you're at your best personally. And that doesn't mean that you have all the bells and whistles, you know, that you have five kids or whatever, but it means that you have a sense of yourself that's apart from your job. Well, that because I you're agree not your with. job. You're, you're oh, no, not, absolutely. You know. Well, I don't think one. Sh- I don't think that anyone should be – one on one with the career. In other words, you're not the job. Is the point? I mean, sometimes people, for example, those who have been recently unemployed, who are very depressed, 
they have difficulty separating themselves out from the job, and that I think is is not a good thing. No, I think well, I think it's challenging. I remember being uh, losing my radio show, and feeling you know that I was Julianne Malvo of of the you know. Malvo in the morning said, that's who I was, that there wasn't anything else to me. And it took me a minute to say, just a minute, kiddo. You're all that. You've always been all that. So, so, you know, this changes. What does that mean for something else that you're doing? But we in America have a tendency to over-identify with our work and our worth. We really do. We have a tendency to think we are what our salary is. We are what our work is. You look, go to anywhere, a, a, a networking mixer, and people identify as I'm so and so from so and so, not I'm so and so. No, I agree with that. And I think we do too much of that. I mean, although certainly our work, you know, we spend at least a third of our lives at work if we do eight hour days. But still, you know, there has to be more to us, and we have to remember who we are and whose we are because we don't serve a job, we really are here to serve a higher power. Well, Dr. Malvo, I want to thank you for sharing your inspiring story today. Well, I don't thank you think again that for our, having me. I don't think our listeners will forget that our conversation, and I do hope that you will come back soon. I'd love it, Dr. Barrow. I really would. I've enjoyed the interview. You've done your homework on me, and it's been a fun time to be together. Well, I even have more to ask, so that's why I do hope we can talk again soon. Upcoming shows. From June 10th through July 1st, I will interview award-winning artists who win without competing. On Wednesday, June 10th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, I will interview Brian Sutherland, award-winning glass artist known for his fizzle fruit. Brian's passion for working with glass was first ignited as a student at California State University, Chico. After receiving his Bachelor of Arts in glass sculpture, he accepted a position at the Orient and Flume, which has been producing fine art glass since 1972. He later studied with and was invited back as teaching assistant to Bill Gunroth, master Venetian glass artist in Corning, New York, of the world-renowned Corning Museum and Institute. After studying with Mr. Gunrath, Brian decided to become an entrepreneur. He set up his own glass art studio in Gridley, Northern California, which is sited on the property of a 35-acre abandoned fruit cannery, the Hunt Cannery, established in 1896, which was one of the largest peach canning operations in the world. The property was later operated as the Libby Cannery, a cooperative, which began in 1932 and ceased operations in 2001. It was out of the enormous rubble left behind that the Sutherland Glass Studio emerged. Sutherland's work has appeared in leading galleries, juried exhibitions, and installations throughout the United States. I did have the pleasure of viewing in person Brian's work recently at the Beverly Hills Juried Art Show Affair in the Gardens. For those who love vampire novels, be sure to tune in on Wednesday, July 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. My guest will be Sherilyn Kenyon, who, according to Publishers Weekly, is the reigning queen of the vampire novel. Kenyon had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. 310-441-5305. Please remember that I'm based in Los Angeles. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, 
career success the right fit way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for search services, barrowglobal.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.